most Hollywood movies that we see and love and enjoy have a real tidy ending to them, right? The, the conflict is resolved. Everything ties together. There's a good ending. You feel good. But then once in a while, you, you'll see a movie where it just leaves you hanging. You know, the thing that pieces don't come together, it just kind of ends with a dud. That's kind of what happens here in Jonah. If it would have just been Jonah chapters one through three, Hollywood script, right? We're rejoicing, 120,000 people in Nineveh repent, life is good, Jonah's celebrating in the movie. And yet we have chapter four that leaves us just scratching our heads. What is this all about? I actually love chapter four. Here's why. Because it's representative of the entire Bible. The Bible's honest. The Bible is brutally honest about the human condition, about our brokenness, about how stories don't always end well. Oh, there's a story that's gonna end well, yes, when Jesus returns, but between now and then, things don't always end well. And so the Bible is, is brutally honest and therefore very relevant to the life we live. We've been looking at this, this book of Jonah and really answering the question, how do we find our place in God's mission? And I've described it like a, like a stool that has four legs and that each one of those legs is important for the stool to be founded and for you to find your place in God's mission. And each one of those legs represents a component that's critical to finding your place in God's mission. In chapter one, it was responding to God's pursuit. God works long before you're ever aware of it. Chapter two, understanding grace. Chapter three, and into the beginning of chapter four, extending mercy. And now we get toward to chapter four, and it's about loving what God loves. I'll be focusing mainly on verses six through 11 because we worked up through verse five uh, last week. But the question we answer is, how, how, do you, how do you love what God loves? This is, in essence, the, the whole story of Jonah. The last verse ends where the heart of the story is. How do you love what God loves? How are you moved with compassion towards what God is moved with compassion towards? How do you love what God loves? And to answer this, we're gonna, we're gonna look at the hidden love of self, the pursuing love of God, and the compassionate love for others. So let's start with hidden love of self. Why do I say hidden? Interesting, if I were to kind of pull the room, many of you would say, you know what? Yes, I, I'm selfish here and there, but I don't, I don't think I have a real unhealthy self-love. I'm not unhealthily self-absorbed. I'm not a narcissist. I struggle with selfishness. You know, the unhealthy love of self is, it goes undetected. It kind of flies under the radar. We're not self-aware enough to diagnose that, to answer that question. There are, there are signs of self-love, and we see them here in chapter four. Notice in the chapter, notice the emotion or the emotions that Jonah experiences. The one is obvious because it comes up over and over, and that is anger. It's just throughout the whole chapter. But did you catch the other emotion that pops up right in the middle? Into verse six, 
said that Jonah was exceedingly glad, right? So anger, 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 joy, anger, anger, anger. Big swing of emotion. Now, what causes Jonah's anger and what causes his joy? Well, here's the irony. He gets angry because something good happens to Nineveh. He gets joyful because something good happens to him. And what we see here is that Jonah is operating what I'll call this kind of personal happiness grid. When things go his way or he gets what he wants, he's happy. When things don't go his way, when things don't go as he wants them to go, he gets angry. And it's a picture of a very self-absorbed man. Now, remember, he's a prophet of God. He represents Israel So the self-absorption that you see here in Jonah is really just a representation of the self-absorption of Israel in the Old Testament. And then take it one step further. We're going to get there. The self-absorption of the church in the New Testament. This is, that's the progression of it. So we see these huge swings of emotion. You say, well, wait, so, so swings of emotion are evidence of self-love. Well, no, wait a minute. Look at the life of Jesus. God became man, put on flesh. Jesus got angry when he cleared the temple. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus was filled with great joy as he looked forward to the cross, Hebrew tells us. So you've got anger, weeping, joy. Jesus, as a man, experienced the full gamut of emotion. But why did he get angry? Because the temple was being used for selfish gain not for the worship of his father. Why did he weep? Because he looked at Jerusalem and all these people, and they were lost, and they were helpless, and they were harassed. Why did he get joyful? As Hebrews says, when he looked forward to the cross and endured it, because he saw the joy of being restored to the people he's made. A little diagnostic. How often is your anger righteous anger. Now I say there is righteous anger. Jesus in the flesh exhibits that in the temple. How often is yours righteous? Is mine righteous? I'm going to be really generous here and say maybe 1% of the time. Maybe. What do you get angry over? Most often it's when something doesn't go your way or you don't get what you want or somebody takes something from you. 99% of the time, our anger is self. Think about uh, weeping. How often do you weep over the hurt and pain in somebody else's life versus how often you weep or at least get sad over the hurt, pain, circumstances in your own life? Joy. How often do you erupt with joy at somebody else's success? Versus how often do you erupt with joy over your own success? You see, our swings of emotion, not all the time, there are healthy, righteous emotions, but our swings of emotion most often are indicative of an unhealthy self-love. Now, what's the result of it? So what's the result of an unhealthy self-love that we see playing out here in chapter four with Jonah? Interesting. Look how God explains the lesson of the plant. All right, the, the lesson of the plant is verse six. 
or the, the plant itself. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. The word discomfort here, it's the same word that's translated disaster in other parts of the book. You say, wow, that's strong. Right? Disaster if Jonah doesn't get shade in the desert. Well, it's not, it's not too strong. We see what happens when he doesn't have shade. He faints. This is Middle East, scorching desert heat, right? Faint on the way to dehydration, death. It, it's, yes, it's serious. Disaster. You can lose your life, right? In the Middle East, in the desert, without shade. This is what's happening. But I want you to notice what happens. So verse five, Jonah builds himself a booth. So he he builds himself a booth. He builds himself shade in the desert. What does he do? I don't know. He gathers some sticks, some dried up tumbleweed. He throws it together and makes a booth. So he has shade. So what does God do? God gives him this lush, aesthetically pleasing, beautiful shade in the form of this beautiful, lush, opulent green vine that grows up over him. Jonah goes from tumbleweed shack to mansion of beautiful, unbelievable green shade in the midst of the desert. An incredible gift from God. He already had shade. God just graced him with something more. Beautiful, beautiful shade. And then God explains the gift in verse 10. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. In other words, Jonah this plant was a gift. It was a gift of grace. You didn't work for it. You worked for your tumbleweed booth. You didn't work for this plant. And by the way you've been living, you certainly haven't deserved this. It's a gift. And so then verse nine, God says, how can you now be angry that the plant is gone? And Jonah loved the plant. He hated it when it was gone. And there it is, the result of self-love, hoarding God's gifts, hoarding God's gifts for your own comfort, hoarding God's grace for your own selfish comfort. And again, this is just indicative of what we read in the entire Old Testament about the nation of Israel. Hoarding God's grace, hoarding God's gifts, for self, for comfort. You see, God's grace is not just for you. God's grace is for others. God's ultimate goal, and hear me out here, God's ultimate goal is not to make you comfortable and happy. Let me give you a couple examples of this. If God gifts you with a nice home, Now, when I say nice home, this is what I mean. Every person in this room, whether you live in a dorm, an apartment, a home, a small home, a medium home, a big home, every person in this room has a nice home compared to a majority of the world, okay? So it's all relative. When God gives you a nice home, 
He doesn't give it to you so that you can just be comfortable and be happy in it. He gives it to you so that you can use it to bless others, to gift others with it for the sake of the kingdom. When God gives you a raise at work, again, relatively speaking, 10 cents an hour, whatever, when God gives you a raise at work, increases your income, gives you a promotion, he doesn't do that so that you can then move to another standard of living necessarily and, and become cush and opulent in your lifestyle. No, he blesses you with that so that you can then pour that out for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom. Last one, when God gifts you with mercy and forgiveness, he doesn't just gift you with it so you can feel good about yourself. The gospel is not just therapeutic. He gifts you with mercy and forgiveness so that you can get over yourself and stop thinking about yourself and give yourself to others. You see, God's grace is not just for you. Yes, it starts in you, but it is for others. Loving what God loves starts with understanding how self-absorbed you are and how you can digest God's grace for purely selfish reasons. Second, loving what God loves means understanding the pursuing love of God. Remember, the pursuit of God started in chapter one, took on the form of a storm, right? A fierce storm. And we saw that as the storm intensified, so did God's pursuit of Jonah. And we learned that, that God will use what is, whatever is available to him, whatever means are available to him to get Jonah's heart back, to realign Jonah's heart with his heart. And of course, with God, that means that everything's available to him, everything. And so we see it here in chapter four, verse six, God appoints a plant. Verse seven, God appoints a worm. Verse eight, God appoints a scorching east wind. And so what you have here is an agricultural disaster, a strong desert storm, all for the purpose of getting Jonah's heart, all for the purpose of realigning Jonah's heart to God's heart. God is using the created order almost like pieces on a chessboard to expose Jonah, to expose his heart, to get it back. Now, the question is, what is he trying to expose in Jonah? What's he trying to expose? What's the purpose of God's pursuit? He's, expo he's exposing Jonah's disordered loves. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant. Jonah, you pity the plant. The word pity here means to uh, to look compassionately upon or to, to have affection for. It says, Jonah, you have affection for that plant. You love that plant. Now, here's the question. Did, did he love the, the plant itself? Did he love the nice green stem and the broad leaves? And the, I'm sure it was beautiful. No, he, he loved the comfort that it brought. That's what he loved. He loved the, the comfort that it brought. And, and he had gotten to a place where he loved that comfort so much that he didn't give a rip about 120,000 people who were spiritually lost 
in Nineveh. That, that Jonah had become, and I say become, when you know the history of his life, you see that this is, a, a, he's tracking along. Remember, Jonah was a spoiled prophet. He served with King Jeroboam, and God gave him good news to give to the king, which was very rare for prophets. They always delivered bad news. And Jonah's good news was, King, you're going to restore Israel to its ancient glory. How about that for a prophet? You know, you go to the king and say, You're going to be great. Wonderful. Jonah, you're awesome. That was what he was given as a prophet. He cared about the success and the peace of Israel, so much so that he wanted Nineveh wiped out. Nineveh was the great enemy of Israel. As long as Nineveh was around, Israel's peace and security was threatened, was in jeopardy. And so here you have Jonah, a man who, had, who, who loved the security of Israel, the peace of Israel, his comfort, all of that, way too much. That was the problem. His loves were disordered. He loved his comfort way too much and didn't give a rip about 120,000 people in Nineveh. His loves were way out of whack. And that's what God was trying to expose. It kept him from being on mission. Now, Jonah was a prophet. He represented Israel, which New Testament represents the church. This is not a new dynamic. Old Testament, think about Babylon. When they come in, and, and ransack Jerusalem and take Israel into exile. If, if you read what happened, it was brutal. They came in, they destroyed the temple. They, they committed horrible acts to God's people, even to the babies. We read that in Psalm 137. Then they took them into exile in Babylon. And what did God's people do? When they got into Babylon, they stayed on the outside of the city. They huddled up, they hunkered down. They said, we're just gonna wait here until we get back to Jerusalem. This is far too uncomfortable. That's an evil place. We're not going in there. There's too much. Look what they've done to us already. And we are, we're not going in for another dose of pain, another dose of discomfort, another dose of suffering. We're going to huddle up and wait until God brings us back home. So what does God do? He sends a letter to him through Jeremiah chapter 29. And let me just read verses five through seven. This is what God says to his people. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God says, I want you to go right into the center of that evil place and be a light. New Testament, book of Acts, will move from Israel to the church. God's people are huddled in Jerusalem. Jesus says to them, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. After the Holy, wait for the Holy Spirit to come and then boom. So the Holy Spirit comes and then what happens in Acts three through five? They huddle up. They huddle in Jerusalem. It's comfortable, it's home. That's dangerous. They just killed Jesus. That means if we go out there, that could happen to us. Why would we ever do that? It's too much fear to do that. It's, it's too uncomfortable. There's too much suffering. So what does God do? He sends a massive persecution on the church in Acts chapter six. It starts with Stephen. Stephen gets killed. 
martyred. And what happens? The church is scattered. Love of comfort is the great enemy to God's mission. Now notice what I said there. Love of comfort is the great enemy to God's mission. There's nothing wrong with comfort. Heaven will be a very comfortable place. Okay? God gifts you with things that do bring comfort to your life. There's a spiritual comfort. But, but love of comfort, disordered love for comfort, is a great enemy to God's mission. We see it throughout the scriptures, and we see it in our own lives. How do you love what God loves? Let me ask you some just diagnostic questions. Is your love for comfort keeping you from answering God's call? Is your love for your house, for where you specifically live, for the order and ease of your life, is it keeping you from answering God's call to move out? Maybe literally to move out. Maybe to move to a different city. Maybe to move to another country. Or if not literally, is it keeping you from moving out in mission where he's planted you? Does your love of your stuff and your possessions keep you so distracted because you've got so much stuff to keep spinning that it's preventing you from moving out towards your neighbors next door who are going to see God has a great compassion for? How do we love what God loves? Understand the hidden love of self. Understand that hidden love of self that we, we hoard God's grace. Second, understand his pursuing love, its purpose to expose those disordered loves. And then finally, understand the compassionate love for others. Look at verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You know, the, the word here, again, pity, it means to look compassionately upon or to have affection for. We see it surface in the Gospels. In, in, in Matthew chapter 9, when it says Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion there, it means, the Greek word, it means gut-wrenching. Like Jesus was physically moved inside by what he saw. And so what we see here is that God has gut-wrenching compassion on Nineveh. And Jonah has gut-wrenching compassion on a plant. That's the contrast that's set up here. Jonah and Jesus are opposites, right? Jonah goes outside the city, verse 5, to condemn it. Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus goes outside the city to save it. Hebrews 13, uh, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, or the city, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 
See, God's heart is moved by 120,000 people in Nineveh. Jonah's heart is moved by a plant, ultimately his comfort. What do we learn here? It's, it's simple, but it's also astounding that God loves people. He loves people. That his heart is moved by people. That he is moved with compassion over your neighbors. That he's moved with compassion over your coworkers. That he's moved with compassion over your classmates or your teammates. That he is moved. Do we believe that? Do we grasp that at a heart level? What, what moves your heart? That's the question that is begged out of this last chapter, is what, what moves your heart? Goes on in Hebrews 13 to say in verses 13 to 14, therefore, meaning if Jesus went outside the gate to suffer and save that city, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, outside the city, and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Is your heart so moved by people that you are willing to endure the reproach and the discomfort for the sake of those people coming to know Christ. You see, the, the writer of Hebrews gives the reason why we should freely be able to do that at a heart level. He says, we have the comfort of the city of God. We have the comfort of the city of God. The city that, as we learn in Revelation, is going to come down to this earth when Jesus returns and purify it and cleanse it and remake it. But we have the comfort of the city of God so that we can endure the discomfort of this earthly city for the sake of loving people. You see, that's the argument. And loving them to Christ so that they then too can have the comfort of the city of God that is coming in full. I share this story uh, not in any way to toot our own horn, okay? But I share it so that you, you can see as a church, we're, we are trying by God's grace. And we're not perfect. And we all fall into what we see in the life of Jonah. But we are trying hard to love what God loves. And that means, I made an announcement earlier that we have offices here in the university center. And you, you might have scratched your head and said, wait a minute. But we heard at the vision banquet that you were looking to move offices from Mandarin out here and that you were looking at office space. And we even had announced that we had uh, gotten with a broker and started looking at some space in East Park. And we saw some spots and we actually got to a place of building it out with a, a space layout, had some contractors bid on it. And then the broker took all that to the landlord. And what we realized in his talks with the landlord is that 
they were going to be willing to pay for less than we thought of the major build-out of the office space. On top of that, the, the lease rate was going to be higher than we expected. So it was going to be more expensive than we thought. We could have afforded it. We could have done it. We could have paid for it. But it would have delayed the mission at the beach. It would have delayed the planting at the beach. And so we decided to not do it. And about that time, the Lord provided a wonderful, wonderful small room here in the university center for our staff to do the work. And you can walk by it. It's at the end of the children's hallway and you'll see. It's not a big room. We've got six workstations in there and we are all on top of each other. Not nearly as comfortable as it would have been with everybody having their own clean office. But when we, when we put that before the leadership of the church and said, what should we do? I mean, it, the answer was simple. Pile them in. Because we're not gonna put the mission on hold for a comfortable office space. And, and the staff has talked about this and, and we love it. It's gonna be great. Now, will we build out office space in the future sometime? Maybe, but never when it compromises the mission because the mission of God is about people and reaching people, not comfort. And so, sure, we'll bear with it and we'll continue to move forward in mission. What's that look like in your own life, in your personal life? What does that look like? To be so about the mission and, and God's love for people that you fall in love with his people and his people that don't know him yet, that everything gets restructured and reoriented in your mind and your life to line your heart up, to love what God loves. There's a great practical ending application point to this sermon. And that is, come to the missions conference next weekend. I mean that. Next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Because you're gonna see the fruit in that conference of God's compassion on lost people, lost people groups, and lost nations. And you're gonna see the fruit of men and women who by God's grace, their hearts have been aligned with his. And you're gonna see the fruit of their compassion for lost people and lost groups and lost nations. This missions conference is designed to help you find your place in God's mission. Whether it's you go, whether it's you send more intentionally, whether it's you financially send more intentionally, whether it's you partner more, whether it's you get plugged into a mission here in the city with your children, this missions conference is designed to help you find your place in God's mission and be a culmination of this work through Jonah which at the end is, do you love what God loves? Is your heart moved with compassion over the things that God's heart is moved with compassion for? Let's pray. Father, we all confess, every one of us, that we love our comfort way too much. 
that we love the things that serve us. Father, I pray this morning that you would, as you have been doing in the study through Jonah, Lord willing, as you will do into next weekend's missions conference, begin to stir up the affections, the pity, the compassion in our heart for the people around us that, God, you are moved by. Father, I pray there would be wonderful stories that come out of this, of hearts being moved, of people being saved, of conversions happening, of, of intentionality, of families embracing mission on a whole new level and embracing missions on a whole new level. And Father, as we close in worship, would we be reminded that Jesus, you are the missionary. You're the one who came from heaven into this sinful place to rescue us. So we close by worshiping you, Jesus, and asking you to align our hearts with yours. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and let's close together in worship.